How many of you like know the story of Jonah at least loosely? Right? I think I think all of us probably at some point I think just even into Western culture, the story of Jonah to some degree is just one that's kind of like known. Maybe I'm crazy for saying that. I don't know, but I feel like it is. It's one of those that's known. And you know what? In, in every children's Bible that I have in my house, which is a good few now at this point because I have a lot of kids, um, <laughs> it, the story of Jonah is in there. All right? But here's the, here's the problem. is that we've almost become too familiar with the story of Jonah. And oftentimes what we're familiar with is the children's Bible version of the story of Jonah. And so that is actually a, a problem. So what we're going to do just for the next few minutes is begin to, to kind of to unpack the book of Jonah in a, in a big picture way. We're going we're gonna to do the 30,000 foot view over, over the story of, of Jonah, over the book of, of Jonah. Because I think there's some things we actually need to unthink, unlearn about the book of Jonah. All right? So a couple of things um, that, that pop out to me is when you think of the book of Jonah, and, I, and there's, this is okay, like just whatever comes to your mind. What comes to your mind when you think of the book of Jonah? Anybody? A whale, a, whale, a fish. Or yeah, yeah, of course. Because everything we've ever seen, if we were ever in like a Sunday school class and there was a flannelograph, there's, there's going to be a fish. Almost any time you look up Jonah on like Google, Google Images or whatever, guess what's going to show up? Whale after whale after whale after whale. Like, it's just like, that's, that's, do you know how much the whale shows up, or the big fish shows up in the story of Jonah? Two verses. The end of chapter one, it says that a fish came and swallowed up Jonah. And then the end of chapter two where it says a fish spit Jonah out. That's it. The whole book of Jonah. So here's the first thing I think we need to see. The fish is not the thing. All right? And that's the first thing we need to unlearn. The fish is not the thing. The fish is not the point of the story. The fish is a very minor character in the story that plays a role, and that is to get Jonah from point A to point B. That is it. That's what the fish does. All right? And so we tend to focus on the fish. Every children's Bible, again, too, focuses on the fish. They spend way more time on the fish than they do really on the rest of the story almost. It's like Jonah got thrown overboard. He got swallowed by a fish and becomes this big thing about the fish and all this kind of stuff. And then he got spat up, right? And then he preached to the people and then they all repented and everybody was happily ever after, right? And this presents the second problem with the book of Jonah. Most of us are not aware that there is a fourth chapter in the book of Jonah. <laughs> right? And you think, like, well, of course there is. I can look in my Bible. Right? But most of us actually don't know that part of the story. Because most retellings of the story of Jonah leave out the fourth chapter. It ends at the third chapter, where, every, where all the people in Nineveh turn to God, and it's happily ever after. Right? Jonah's done his job. Right? He repented. The fish spit him out. He went and did what God asked him to do. The people of Nineveh repented. And hooray, we all lived happily, happily ever after problem is that fourth chapter, right? So the fish is not the thing, and there's a fourth chapter. Okay, those are the two things that I think we need to kind of get our heads around and, and unlearn, right? Because what we find when you read that fourth chapter is it doesn't end happily ever after. Jonah doesn't tie everything neatly in a bow and hand it to us. Here's a nice little cute story we can tell our kids. This is why the children's Bible stop at chapter three. Because chapter 4 ends with Jonah, a very cruel, bitter, angry man. 
the end. That's chapter 4, right? Where God goes, Jonah, what is wrong with you? The end. Curtain closed. Scene. <laughs> right? Like, that's it. Right? We're out. So it doesn't end. It doesn't tie things in a bow. We end up with Jonah angry at God and bitter because God has shown love and compassion to someone Jonah doesn't like. Hmm. Okay. Well, what do we do with that? And that's the problem. And again, like I said, that's why most kids' Bibles end at chapter 3 because you're left going, well, geez, what do I do with that? How do I teach that lesson to kids? I don't think it's as hard as we want to think it is, but, but like at the same time, it, it does not end well with Jonah. And we're left wondering, what did Jonah do? What happened next for Jonah? Right? So Jonah is unique. Jonah is very unique in the Bible. Not just because it ends on a sour note, right? That's not the only reason Jonah is unique. It's not just unique because Jonah is swallowed by a fish, which is unique, right? It's not just, you know, unique because Jonah goes and preaches to, like, some of the most evil people in the world, and they turn to God, like, in a five-word sermon, okay? It is unique among the prophetic books because, well, let's just read it. Well, let's read Jonah 1 and 1, 1 to 2. So if you have that open, here it is. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amatai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I've seen how wicked its people are. Now, if you're very familiar with the prophets, that's basically how all the prophets start out. Something like that. Right? The oracle given to, you know, to Amos or, or whatever. This is the word of the Lord that came to Joel. And, you know, like... It, that formula is familiar if you've ever read any of the prophets. So the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. And it tells us that this is a prophetic book. And so again, if you've read any of the prophets, then you know what should follow. Because what comes next, usually, when you read the prophets? Okay, what comes next is a compilation of messages that the prophet has received. Right? So he goes to the people of Israel and he says... Hey guys, like, basically you're all scumbags and you need to stop it. And the people either do or they don't. Usually they don't. And then they come back again and say, guys, what did I say before? Here's what's going to happen if you don't. Right? And then the people still don't change. And then they come back a third time. Right? So it's just kind of like message after message. Right? It's, it's oracles saying, here's what's going to happen to you. Okay, fine. You don't want to change. This is what God's going to do to you. Right? And so that's, that's typically the pattern that we see in the prophets. But that's not what we see in Jonah. Jonah is a narrative. It's a story. Right? So it is unique among the prophets. Okay? And we find out, you know, again, that Jonah is not like the other prophets for other reasons as well. There's no other book like it in the whole Bible. Right? I mean, you can say there are other books that are narrative, right? Okay? But there's no other book like Jonah. The main character in Jonah is not particularly likable. The main character in Jonah is a prophet who's not really a very good one. Right? He is a prophet who is in rebellion against God. Like, it is unique, right? You read the book of Jonah, and you end up, at the end, going, I don't really like this guy. Right? And, and actually, that's, that's the point. And we're going to get to it. That's the point. 
Okay? So everything in Jonah is upside down and backwards. Okay? And, and we're going to unpack it. We'll see that already in chapter 1. Straight away. Everything is backwards. Like nothing is working the way that you would assume it would. If you're a person reading the story for the first time, if you're an Israelite used to receiving prophecies from the Lord, words from the Lord, it does not work in the way you think it would. It's upside down. It's backwards. And that is because it is an incredible piece of literary art. Okay, and I don't use that term lightly. And this is something, guys, people used to study the Bible as literature. That was a thing. Okay, and there are still people who do, but it's not as common as it once was, right? And the reason people would study it is because it is masterfully written. Now, as Christians, we also believe, hey, it was inspired by God, right? But even people who were far from Jesus could read these Bible stories and go, wow, these are like, these people were geniuses. We often have this idea that the ancients, well, they just weren't as smart as we were. I'm sorry, I don't see a whole lot of literature this incredible, to be honest with you. Maybe I'm reading the wrong books, you know, but like, this is an incredible piece of art that was crafted by somebody who was inspired by God to write it. So who is Jonah? Okay, and I think that's important. We need to, we need to spend a couple of minutes asking that question. Who is Jonah? Jonah is only mentioned one other time in the Bible, outside of the book with his name on it. Okay, and it takes place in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 25. For the sake of time, we're not going to turn there. And we're not going to dive into the prophecy and all of this kind of thing. But, but here's what it is. There's a king by the name of Jeroboam II. And if you know who Jeroboam I is, you know Jeroboam II is not going to be a great guy if you know, he's getting named after Jeroboam I. Okay? Because Jeroboam I is the guy who splits the kingdom of Israel into two. Right? So then you have Judah in the south, and you've got the kingdom of Israel to the north. And maybe that's geography you weren't aware of or you didn't know it was there. Look, we can chat about that later. I can unpack that for you. It's not that complicated. It'll just take a few minutes to do, and we don't have time for that. But to say this, Jeroboam I is the guy who like splits the kingdom in half. So when, when Jonah goes to prophesy at Jeroboam, to Jeroboam II, we would assume that that prophecy is going to be negative because he's probably a bad guy. And actually we find out he's a really terrible guy, Jeroboam II. Right? He lives up to the namesake. He is not a good guy. Right? And so we assume that when Jonah goes to him, he's going to prophesy against him. Right? Wrong. Jonah actually gives a prophecy to Jeroboam II. And the thing we need to be careful about is it is from God. It is a prophecy from God. But he prophesies that his kingdom will grow and prosper. And then later, Amos is going to come and he's going to say, actually, that promise, forget about it. God's done with you. It's over. You're not going to get that promise. Okay? But Jonah did deliver a message from God. But interestingly, it was a message that was positive to Jeroboam II about growing his kingdom. What that means, I'm not fully sure, but I do think it's interesting. Like, for somebody who would be listening to this story or reading this story for the first time, they would remember who this Jonah guy is. And maybe for them already, there's a little bit of a, you know, the spidey sense there. Um, going, okay, we've got this Jonah guy. What's he going to do here? All right, so his name literally means dove. Okay, so Jonah is dove, right? And it says that he is the son of Amittai. And Amittai means faithfulness. So Jonah's name literally means dove, son of faithfulness. What do we usually associate doves with? Peace. Yeah. But what we find in the story, and I think it's interesting, Jonah's a real character, okay? 
But I also think it's interesting. A real person, real human, lived, breathed on this earth, was a prophet for God. But I do think it's interesting that his name is Peace, or, you know, Dove, son of faithfulness. Because what we find in Jonah is he is neither, neither peaceful nor very faithful. <laughs> and so I think there's an interesting irony, even in his name from the beginning, right? And so Jonah is anything but peaceful, he's anything but faithful, and yet he winds up being the messenger, albeit not willingly, but he winds up being the messenger of God's peace. And through his call to repent, people come to have peace with God. Now maybe that was only temporary, we don't know, but like, there was peace with God through Jonah. The other thing that we see is that Jonah is not particularly faithful. The son of faithfulness is not very faithful. But what we find is that the God who he speaks about is faithful. God's faithful character is shown in full display throughout the book of Jonah. Jonah is no hero. In fact, he is like an anti-hero. But God in this story is the clear hero. And I think that's part of the point of the story. One of the main points that begin to emerge out of this story is of God's mercy, of God's compassion, of God's sovereignty, that God is in control. One of the things that we see is we see God in control in this book, right? God brings the storm that shakes the boat in, that Jonah is in. God brings the fish. He commands the fish to swallow Jonah. He commands the fish to spit Jonah out. He commands a plant to grow up. And he commands a worm to come and eat this plant. So over and over, what we see is God's sovereign actions at work in the book of Jonah. And yet we see Jonah rejecting God's call. We see this kind of backwards, upside-downness of the story as Jonah rejects God's call. He doesn't pray when he's asked by the pagans uh, on the boat. He doesn't fully reveal the situation until, uh, you know, Lot's, and again, we're going to read this in a second, but Lot's reveal Jonah to be the culprit who causes the storm. We see that Jonah would rather die than go to Nineveh. And when he finally goes, he preaches in Hebrew a five-word sermon. It's a few more words in English, but in Hebrew it's only five words. The bare minimum, right? The least amount of words that he could possibly muster up to the people of Nineveh. And yet they repent, and not only them, but even the animals repent. It says, Jonah ends up not being happy about this. He gets super angry and wishes he was dead. And so really, the, as we're talking about theme and everything, is this the Jonah that you remember hearing about? <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. And that's what makes this book so interesting. That's what makes this book so interesting, because we see this theme emerging from the book. And just when you find yourself, we, we, we come to the second theme in the book, just when you find yourself thinking, thank goodness I'm not like Jonah. Right? Because that's, I, I don't know, you can read that story. He's not a likable character. You don't like him. You go, hey, but hey, at least God's sovereign. You know, he made sure, even through uh, a guy like Jonah, he still got his work done, right? God still accomplished what he intended to accomplish. God is that sovereign. God is that in control. God is that merciful and gracious and kind. Thank goodness I'm not like Jonah. I'm no way like that. Here's the other thing. Jonah serves as a mirror. 
This is why, again, I say this is an amazing piece of literary art. Okay? Have you guys ever um, spent some time looking at yourself in a mirror? I'm sure none of you have, right? But what if it wasn't even just a mirror? What if it's like one of those like super magnifying mirrors? It's like the magnifying glass, but like a mirror. You know what I'm talking about? The ones that like show you every single pore on your face, every imperfection uh, possible. I can even see hairs on the bald spot of the beard I'm growing. Like, right? You know, like that sort of thing. Like it's that sort of that close. Sorry, that was that was a dumb joke. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. Jonah is like that. Okay, if we will let it, what Jonah will do. In the book of Jonah will turn that mirror and point it right at our face and show us every single one of our imperfections. What we will find is that you and I are a lot more like Jonah than we're comfortable admitting. All right, And that's why I think it's really important that we're going through this book. Because the book of Jonah exposes our worst tendencies as human beings towards rebellion against God towards going our own way, being fine with God so long as he does what I want him to do, right? Being fine showing mercy to me, but not to other people. Like Jonah exposes all of these tendencies that you and I can be tempted by. That temptation to form a God who looks just like me, who thinks just like me, and who only does just what I think he should. A God that we can put into a box. And that's what we find with Jonah. And I think that's when we turn that mirror towards us, oftentimes, it's the uncomfortable thing that it exposes to, in, in us as well. So I hope that Jonah is a wake-up call for some of us, for all of us, really. And as we walk through the book of Jonah, just kind of finishing our summary here, of the book, we walk through it with two main ideas. So in the next four weeks, this week and three more weeks, we'll be looking at two ideas. The sovereignty, grace, and mercy of God, and the idea that Jonah then is a mirror to expose in us our tendencies to be like Jonah. Alright, so like just like almost every November, these next few sermons are probably going to be a bit heavy, but I think that's okay. I think that's good. We need that. It's one of the reasons like it's become a rhythm in our church. Because I think it is one of those where like you know what we can just let the prophets do their do their work, and like and we and we need that. Just like the people of Israel, just like Jonah, we need these words from the Lord. And so let's go ahead now. Now that we're a good few minutes into the sermon, and read Jonah chapter one. And first, we're going to just read the first uh, six verses. All right. So let's read the first six verses. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this? He shouted. Get up and pray to your God. 
Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. All right, we'll stop there. There's a few things that we need to unpack as we, as we, go, along, as we go along the way here. The first thing we see coming back just to verse 1 and verse 2. The Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. The first thing I want us to think about is this. You and I, 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 I want to believe, want God to use us to do, use us for his, his kingdom, his glory. Right? Like, that's what we want. That's what we desire. And even maybe deep down, some of us go, I want to be like, you know, I want to be like a prophet, or I want to be like Moses. We keep waiting, thinking like, you know what, my day is going to come where I'm going to have that big moment. Maybe none of you are like that. I don't know, but maybe you have that. And here it comes for Jonah. Right? Here it comes. Jonah is given the mission. And this is like a big one, because also, prophets didn't typically go to other places. They stayed within Israel and prophesied about things. But Jonah is told, I want you to go to Nineveh. That's in Iraq, by the way, long ways away from Israel. That's, that's a good walk. Like he's given a serious mission. He's to go to Nineveh, and he's to say, God has seen your injustice and your wickedness. And let me tell you guys, like you may think, like, oh, how bad could they be? They're bad, real bad. Like they did unspeakable things to people. Like when they took them over, when they conquered. I mean, they fish hooked people. I mean, they flayed people alive. I mean, like, look, guys, these were not nice people. Okay, they did really not nice things to people. All right, and I think honestly, just maybe a moment, we need to give Jonah a little bit of a break because these people had had been to Israel before. All right, they were familiar; they knew who each other were. Right, and the Assyrians had come before and done really terrible things, taken people like slaves, maimed, beaten, killed, murdered, flayed, fish hooked. You name it. We could keep going. All the things that you could think of that some awful person in the army would do to somebody who they could, they did. I mean, who knows? Maybe Jonah had relatives that were, were killed by the Assyrians. And I think, so we need to, like, I think, also see the context here. Like, these, Jonah has a reason to not like them. Right? He doesn't just like them because they're not like him. Okay? He doesn't just like, he doesn't just hate them because they don't look like him. He doesn't just hate them because they're a different race. He doesn't just hate them because they have different beliefs. Like, he doesn't like them for probably reasons he would say, well, I can see that. <laughs> right? Okay? And so he's given this task. Right? It says, go to them and tell them God has seen what they're doing. And, it's, <laughs> and he's had enough. He's had enough. Alright? So Jonah's given this, like, big mission, right? And, like, so he's been given this call. I want you to go to Nineveh, the worst people in the world, and pronounce judgment on them. But what does Jonah do? Does he go to Nineveh right away? No. What do we find in the first couple of verses here? Verse 3. Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction. To get away. I told you Nineveh is in Iraq, right? So if you think about Israel, if you've got your geography, you know, picture the globe in your head here, right? He's in Israel, close to the Mediterranean, right? Somewhere close to the Mediterranean. Nineveh is east, kind of northeast uh, in Iraq, right? Modern day, if you want to look at it on Google Maps, it's near, I believe, Tikrit, Iraq, okay? So, like, that's, that's where we're talking, right? But does that, I guess for you guys, it would be like this. So is that where Jonah goes? 
No. Jonah goes to Tarshish. Where's Tarshish? Spain. Nice place to holiday, but probably not a great place to run away from God. Right? So he goes in the complete, like, literal opposite direction. Now, what you need to know about Tarshish in the ancient world is that for them, it was, it was the end of the world. It was as far away as you could possibly go. You know, we have sometimes, I don't know if you guys have ever used this, you know, like Timbuktu. Right? Timbuktu is a real place, but we also use it as like a figurative, like, middle of nowhere. Right? Like, I was out in Timbuktu. Okay? So for people in the ancient times, Tarshish was a real place, but it was also a way of saying, like, I've gone as far away as I possibly could. I'm in Timbuktu. Right? Okay? So Jonah packs up his bags. Instead of going to, to Nineveh, he heads to Timbuktu. Right? He heads to Tarshish. Okay? Like I said, real place. You can look it up on the coast of Spain. And in the ancient world, it was seen as, as the end of the world. So his idea is, I'm going to go as far away as I can. Okay? Does he really think... So he says then, uh, he bought a ticket, got on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. Does Jonah really think, honestly, that he can run away from God? I don't know. I don't know that he does. What I really think he's doing is he's running away from the call of God. He's running away from the call of God. He knows better. I mean, he's a prophet, for goodness sake. He knows he can't run away from God. I think he's running away from the call that God has put on his life. First of our question of the day, is that you? Again, let's hold that mirror up. Let's turn it around and let's look. Maybe you didn't think you could run away from God, but maybe God was calling you to do something you didn't want to do. I mean, I'm not going to stand up here and say, I've never done something like that. We probably all have. We've probably all been there at some point in our lives where we felt like God was calling us to do something, and we were just kind of like, no thanks. Maybe we didn't get on a get on a boat. Maybe we did. Maybe God was calling you to do something, and uh, you know you didn't get on a boat, but you got on an airplane and said, "I'm going to you know the, the farthest place I can go and not be in America, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, like you keep going west. That's where you're going to hit. So like I'll go to the farthest reaches of Europe and go away, right? I don't know, All right? But you know what I'm saying? Like I think here we have Jonah running away from God. It's total rebellion against God's sovereignty. And do you know what? So the people first reading this story, right? I told you, they're reading it. Everything's following the, the, the prophetic sort of formula. And then we get to that where Jonah's like, yeah, no, I'm getting on a boat and I'm going a long way away. It would have shocked people. It would have shocked people. And I think it's meant to shock us too. Because how on earth does Jonah seem to forget what David wrote about God? Right? Psalm 139. Where could I run away from your presence? If I lived far across the sea, even there, your hand would take hold of me. That's why, again, I think Jonah knows better. He's not necessarily running away from God. He's running away from God's call on his life. Because he doesn't want to fulfill what God is going to do. And so we find this theme. Okay? And this one, it, it gets obscured in the New Living Translation, unfortunately. It's not that the New Living Translation mistranslates anything, but what it does is because good English, right? We don't use the same word re repetitively over and over, typically, right? You try and find another word to use that means the same thing. That's like good grammar. Um, but the Hebrew, that's not good grammar necessarily. And in fact, when you're dealing with a piece of literary art, 
sometimes it's really important to know when it's using the same word over and over. And so there's three times this one word shows up, and it's the word down. The word down. And you think, well, why would that be important? Let's read. The first thing we see is in verse 3. He, uh, Jonah got up, went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. All right, let's stop there. So he went down. This is Jonah's movement. Okay? Here's a really important geography thing you need to know. Besides the fact that water is at sea level, uh, Jerusalem is on a mountain. Okay? And you even have psalms that are called psalms of ascent. Because when people would travel to worship God at the temple, they would ascend the mountain of the Lord. So if you want to run from God, you're not going up, you're going down. Right? And so Jonah, in his running, he goes down to Joppa to find a boat. Then he bought a ticket, and the New Living says, and went on board. Now, your translation may translate that more literally, because what it really says is he bought a ticket and went down into it, the boat. He went down into the boat, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. So he's come down to, down to Joppa, and then he has gone down into a boat, okay? And then we'll keep, we'll keep if we skip down, uh, skip down to, um, to verse 5, uh, the, it says, Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. Jonah has gone down to Joppa. He has gone down into the boat. And now he has gone down into the bottom of the boat. This is Jonah's trip. It runs throughout this first chapter, the idea of going down rather than going up towards God. And maybe your, the trajectory of your life has been similar, right? Maybe you were at a stage. I mean, look, Jonah was a prophet, right? He wasn't some irreligious person just kind of going about his days Right? No, this was a guy who was like serious about his faith. And yet here we find Jonah, when confronted with what God wants from him, going down, away from God. And I don't know, maybe that's something you guys can understand, you can relate to, you've experienced that. Maybe that's where you're at right now. You are in rebellion against God, moving away from his purposes for your life, what God wants from you. You have gone down to Joppa. You've gone down into the boat, and now you are down in the hold of the boat. And here's what we find. Jonah is down in the hold of that boat, and what does it say he is doing? He's sound asleep. He is sound asleep. And here's, here's the thing. That's what sin does. Spiritually, sin lulls us to sleep. We don't even see it or realize the consequences that our actions are having. We don't realize what sin is doing to us, what sin is doing to other people, because we've been lulled to sleep. 
whether that is through the, the sweet lullabies of ads on TV, right? Whether that is, you know, the words of people who aren't really our friends but just affirm everything that we do. Whether that just be broadly the, the always ever constant voice of our culture that just says, hey, you do what you want. You do what makes you happy. Right, whatever it is, it lulls us to sleep to the point that we don't even realize we're sleeping. We're that far asleep. And we need to be woken up. We need to wake up to see what sin has been doing in our lives. Jonah has been running from God. And what's interesting is that the book so far has not told us why Jonah is running. Now again, we talked about how the Assyrians were not nice people. Right? But the book doesn't tell us exactly why Jonah decided to run. It doesn't say that's why he decided to run. But in fact, I'm going to spoil the story for you. Chapter 4. Told you it's important. Jonah prays a prayer. And I think we get a snapshot into why Jonah is running. In Jonah 1, or sorry, Jonah 4, verse 2, he actually tells us exactly why he was running. So he complains to the Lord. Sorry, we can start verse 1. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Does that verse sound familiar to you guys? I don't know if you remember back to our series. If you were here, God has a name. We memorized Exodus 34, verse 6. That's exactly what Jonah quotes. And do you know what? It's one of the most quoted verses in all the Bible. Especially if you're reading the Psalms, you will see it come up over and over. You'll see it in Isaiah. You'll see it in other prophets. You'll see it in the New Testament. This idea that God is merciful and gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And everywhere else in the whole canon of Scripture, that is a praise to God. God, this is who you are. You are amazing. And here Jonah goes, God, this is who you are, and I hate it. I hate it right now. Just kill me. I don't want to live anymore. Don't be merciful to those people. I knew you would do this, and that's why I ran away, because I know who you are. Sheesh, that is scary, isn't it? That somebody could be following God, who can know God so well, know his character, know all about him, and actually run away from his call because of God's character. Because of who he is. That's exactly why Jonah says he ran. I know who you are, and that's why I ran away. That's scary. He knew God would relent and not destroy Nineveh. And that's why he's running away. What do you do when God seems to get in the way of what you want? Let's put it up there as a question. Hey, what do you 
God is in the way of what you want. Can I be honest and just say, that's a hard question for me to answer too. As human beings, that is a hard, we, we like our economy. Thank you very much. I like to be able to do what I want to do. So did Jonah. And you know what? These people that Jonah didn't like very well, he didn't want mercy for those people. He wanted the justice that they deserved. He wanted their just deserts to be given to them. You know what we find in the next chapter? Jonah prays for mercy. For running away from God. And God gives it to him and he's very happy to receive it in that moment. He's happy to have mercy for him. He just doesn't want mercy for them. That was an unintentional rhyme. But, right? He's happy to have mercy for himself. But he doesn't want those people to receive mercy. And it may not be somebody you're angry at or vindictive towards or whatever. It may be something completely different. But what do you do in those moments when God seems to get in the way of what you want? We'll keep going before it gets too uncomfortable. Thinking about that, right? You can write that down and save that for later. I want to come back then to this idea of Jonah going down, All right? Because he so he goes down into his sin, into his rebellion against God. And I don't know about you guys, but as you read the story, do any of you find yourself feeling sorry for the sailors? They are caught in a storm that is not an accidental storm, right? This is not just a random storm out of nature, you know, sometimes it just happens or whatever. This is not that kind of storm. They are caught up in the wake of Jonah's sin. I don't know, about, like, I read the story, and to be honest, I feel sorry for the sailors. Like, it's not really their fault, right? Jonah shows up, says, hey, can I buy a ticket to Tarshish? And they're like, Sure, why not? Come on board. Why are you coming? I'm running away from God. Oh, sure, aren't we all? Come on board. Right? You know, and it's like, they bring him on board, and next thing you know, what happens? A violent storm. Like, they're freaking out. They're throwing everything they have overboard. Like, get it out of here. Get it out of here. Throw it overboard. Like, we've got to try and get to land. And, like, the whole time, Jonah's just down there snoozing. Right? Everybody else is up panicking. Everybody else is afraid. And this is another key thing in the, in the book of Jonah, this idea of, of fear. And we're going to get to that in just a moment. But I want to sit with this for a moment. The sailors are left with the consequences of Jonah's sin. You and I are told what we do is our problem. Right? So long, you know, do whatever you want, so long as it doesn't hurt anybody. But here's the thing. Sin always destroys and hurts other people. And I, I have a feeling most of us have felt that. I'm one end or another of that. Sin has collateral damage. It always has collateral damage. You think my sin isn't hurting anybody? Forget it. Your sin has collateral damage. My sin has collateral damage. Damage. Like, let's just take for a moment. You you work a job, and you know what? You kind of fudge the numbers a little bit. I mean, why not? Makes me look a little bit better. And eventually comes time to give a promotion. 
And the boss is looking at everybody's numbers, and they go, hey, look, whoa, that guy's numbers look pretty good. There's been a guy who's been busting his, like, backside over and over at work and putting up pretty good numbers, but your numbers are just that little bit better. Why? Just fudge them a little bit. And so you get the promotion. And you think, hey, what's the, what's the harm in that? Big deal. You guys know we live in a rent crisis. He needed that promotion to be able to pay rent. Now where's he going to go? What's he going to do? Are his kids going to have to change school? And all the while, something as simple as just kind of like, ah, it's not going to hurt anybody if I just adjust these numbers a little bit, you know, or my quota, or wh whatever it may be that, that, you know, at your work, or, you know, again, you can fill in the blank and do that. This is just a, a random example here. But to say, like, it would be easy to say, like, ah, what's the big deal? What's it hurting? That's collateral damage. Something like we would say is like a white lie. You know, or just a, just a little fudge here and there, could actually end up shipwrecking somebody else's life. Unfortunately, Ashton Kutcher made a movie about that um, called The Butterfly Effect. Um, I say unfortunately, I don't remember the movie being particularly good. But again, it's, it's that idea, right, that even the littlest thing that we do can change the trajectory of someone's life. And that's sin, guys. Like, whether it's something as huge as like complete rebellion against God, you know, like, Middle fingers in the air, two fingers in the air, whichever offensive thing you want to do as you run away from God, like, you know, maybe that's it, but maybe it's something much less sinister, much less deliberate. Something that you look at and you go, ah, what's the big deal? Sin has collateral damage. And in this place, all of these sailors that are on stuck on a boat with Jonah. You think any of them want to be on a boat with Jonah right now? No way. And now they're stuck in the middle of the Mediterranean in the storm of their life. And it's all Jonah's fault. And while they're struggling and suffering in the sin of Jonah, he's, he's sleeping. He doesn't see it. He doesn't see it. I think we could probably sit on that for a lot longer, but we're going to keep moving. Because the storm that terrified the crew actually took Jonah deeper into sleep. And so I think it's important. Excuse me. That our sin, we see that our sin puts us to sleep spiritually and relationally. While the storm of consequences rages, we just don't see it as a big deal. Maybe you think, oh, I've never been happier. Like, this is great for me. Life's good for me. While everybody else suffers. Right? Snoozing. We're going through the motions spiritually, completely asleep. We don't see all the stuff going on around us. Let's keep reading. Jonah 5. We'll start back at um, sorry, verse 6. We'll start back at verse 6. So the captain went down after him. This is Jonah sleeping in the hole. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God, and maybe he will pay... Sorry, I didn't want to go to verse 5. Skip back to verse 5. Sorry, come back with me. All right? Because, you know, I told you that fear is another theme, right? We have that, that repeated word of down, or else we can have a repeated word of fear. Okay? So that's why we need. it's important to go back to verse 5 there, because otherwise we would skip the first uh, use of that word. So, fearing for their lives... The desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. 
But all this time, Jonah was sound asleep down in the hole. So, this cap so the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. Maybe he will pay attention to us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, the lots identified Jonah as the culprit. And dude didn't even admit that he did it. Right? They had to cast lots and figure out he did it. Sorry. Anyway, keep going. Why has this awful storm come down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? What is your nationality? Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. The sailors were terrified. That word is feared. It's actually literally feared with great fear, which is why the New Living, they terrified. It's probably a good way of putting that, right? So they feared with great fear when they heard this, for he had already told them he was running away from the Lord. Oh, why did you do it? They groaned. And since the storm was getting worse all the time, they asked him, What should we do to stop this storm? Throw me into the sea, Jonah said, and it will become calm again. I know that this terrible storm is all my fault. Instead, the sailors rowed even harder to get, to the, sh get the ship to land. Yeah, good guys. I just want to throw them overboard immediately. Uh, but the stormy sea was too violent for them. And they couldn't make it. Then they cried out to the Lord, Jonah's God. Oh Lord, they pleaded. Don't make us die for this man's sin. And don't hold us responsible for his death. Oh Lord, you have sent this storm upon him for your own good reasons. Then the sailors picked Jonah up and threw him into the raging sea. And the storm stopped at once. The sailors were awestruck. Your Bible may also say fear. That they were, they, they feared Again, feared with great fear. The sailors were awestruck by the Lord's great power, and they offered him a sacrifice and vowed to serve him. Now the Lord had arranged for a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish for three days and three nights. We're going to leave the fish aside until next week, so you can forget about that verse for now. I find it really interesting. I told you Jonah was wild, and that like things... Nothing happens the way you would think it would. And we find an interesting reversal in the book of Jonah as we look at fear. Because we see at first the, the sailors, they fear the storm. Rightly so. I mean, like, it's a bad storm. I would fear too. They fear the storm. <coughs> then they cast lots and find out this is all Jonah's fault because God's angry at him. So then what do the sailors fear? They fear God. They're terrified. What is this God doing to us? What's going to happen to us? And then we find, actually, let me find one right here. <clears throat> yeah. The sailors fear God. And then we actually find that the sailors worship God in verse 16. Fascinating, because we don't see Jonah worshiping God. We see the sailors worshiping God. And then, we find the sailors progress from fearing the storm. So by the time we get to verse 15, they are fearing the Lord. What's interesting is that Jonah is pretty silent through the whole thing, right? He makes a statement like, yeah, I worship God. But does Jonah pray? Nope. Who prays? The sailors. Does Jonah sacrifice? Nope. Who sacrifices? The sailors. Does Jonah worship the Lord? Nope. 
Who worships the Lord? It's the sailors. It's not Jonah. Because that's interesting. I find that interesting. These people are not like fellow Jews. They're, they're people who worship all kinds of gods. But at this moment, they go, oh man, this is a new one for us. This God deserves our worship. And they worship Yahweh. They actually use the name Yahweh. They use God's name. <coughs> and so one of the things that I think we see is that God is so sovereign that he can even use our sinful messes to reach people. And I hope this is an encouragement to you. Sorry, that, there we go, it's on two slides. I hope this is actually an encouragement to you because all of us have been Jonah at some point or another. All of us can think of times in our lives where we have made an absolute mess. But God can use that. Right? Jonah should have never been in that boat. That storm should have never happened to those sailors. And yet, here we find them worshiping the Lord. That is how sovereign God is. Now, the counter to that is Romans chapter 6, where it says, do we go on sinning so that grace may abound? No way! May it never be! Okay? So I'm not, this is not like saying, like, hey, just everybody go out and sin and hope for the best. Hope God uses that. No, that is, just very clearly, that is not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, in those moments where we don't even see it, where we've been lulled to sleep, God can still work. He is that sovereign. And so maybe some of you feel really terrible about some of the things that you've done in your life. Listen, it may have been terrible. But guess what? There's forgiveness. Right? And Jonah finds that in the next chapter. There is forgiveness. And not only is there forgiveness, there is a hope that God has been so sovereign that even in my own sin and my own mistakes, somebody else may have heard about Jesus. So, maybe for some of us though, what I hope is that Jonah can serve as a wake-up call. So there was a slide that probably should have been earlier. Our sin has collateral damage. But God's grace is big enough to continue to work even in and through that. What I think we find then is that the descent into rebellion and spiritual apathy is usually made up of lots of little compromises until you wake up asking, how did I get there? That's been my experience. Right? All of a sudden, you wake up, and you think, how did I get into the bottom of this boat? Why are these people yelling at me? So we need that wake-up call. Jonah also says that he fears the Lord. Right? We have that, that word fear. Again, Jonah says that he worships the Lord. The word is fear. It's in uh, when they ask him the question. Why can't I find it? Yeah. Jonah answered, sorry, verse 9. I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord. It's fear. Fear is, is that word that shows up again. Only with Jonah, we're left being a little bit suspect about that. Right? Jonah's reply to the sailors, despite how religious it sounds that he fears the Lord, seems pretty hollow. When we consider why he's on the boat in the first place, it seems even more hollow. But I bring that up to ask this question. How often does what we say and what we do match? Or maybe, maybe a better way to ask that is, 
an easier way. How often does what we say and what we do come into conflict? Let's go with that. How often does it come into conflict? Because the whole point of the story is, again, we don't want to be Jonah. Right? That's the idea. That's the way the story is working. We don't want to be Jonah. We don't want to be people who leave a wake of destruction in our path. Right? We want to be people who live for Yahweh, who live for God, who truly fear and worship the Lord. I don't want to be a person. This is me personally, and I hope it's you too. I don't want to be a person who says, I follow Jesus, yet looks nothing like him. And so, what we find then, in the end here, is that Jonah tells the sailors to throw him overboard. <clears throat> and we're left with a question that a lot of people have asked. Is what Jonah does, is this his repentance? Is this the beginning of his repentance? Where he says, you know what, just throw me in the sea, this will go away. Some people would say, yes, I'm not so convinced. In fact, I think this is actually when Jonah reaches the bottom. This is Jonah at his worst. Right? So we've gone down to Joppa, we've gone down to the boat, we've gone down into the hold, he's finally been woken up, and what does he say? Throw me down into the sea. Right? This is not, he's not working on his ascent at this point. It is like, actually, you know what? Just throw me a little deeper in. Like, just end it. I would rather die than go to those people. Right? Because that's what he says in chapter 4. He says, I knew you would relent. Just kill me now if you're going to save these people because I don't want to see it. And Jonah knew who God was. And so at this stage, I don't think it's a selfless thing that Jonah does. I think it's a really selfish thing. He says, you know what? Just throw me in the sea. Get it over with. Once I'm dead, the storm will subside. All of this will be over. Just kill me. Jonah is so selfish, he would rather die than pray and return to God. Because he knows a return would mean going to Nineveh. For Jonah, it's going to take an even bigger wake-up call. Perhaps a whale-sized one. Uh, right? Yeah. That's for next week. But uh, the foreshadowing, yeah, he's going to need to go down once more before he can begin his journey upwards. And I wonder if we're sometimes the same. Guys, don't wait till you hit rock bottom and then try and go a little deeper before you change. Can I just, can I just give you that advice? That's free. Like, as soon as you notice it, start the trajectory upwards. Right? When somebody comes to you and confronts you with sin, what is the first thing usually we want to do? Man, forget you, right? How dare you? That, I mean, like, look, that's our first reaction. And I've seen it in, you know, from the littlest to the oldest of people, right? When confronted with doing the wrong thing, we double down or, you know, or we get aggressive and we, you know, because we don't want to admit that we're in that place. We don't want to admit that we've been doing anything wrong. My advice to you would be, do not be like Jonah. Don't get to the place where you actually go, you know what, just throw me overboard because I still don't want to do that. Whatever God wants me to do, I still don't want to do that. Like, don't make it come to that point. It takes hitting rock bottom for Jonah before he sees the damage that he has done. And I think for, some, for probably all of us who have been there. But let's not go there again. Right? Let's not get to that place. 
And you know what? The way that we make sure we don't get to that place is that we need someone to wake us up from our sin. And this is where I think the good news of the gospel comes into the story of Jonah. Right? Because God's going to do exactly that. I mean, that's what the storm was doing. That's what the sailors were doing. That's what the fish is going to do. Like, the whole time, God has been continually caring for Jonah over and over and over. Even though Jonah is going down a completely self-destructive path, God has been trying to, to bring him back this whole time, lovingly trying to bring him back this whole time. And what we see in Jesus is that is exactly the heart of God. That is exactly what we read in Jonah is exactly what we would expect God to do. Because we've seen him do it in Jesus. We stand on this side of Jesus, right? We have seen God's loving kindness. We have seen the truth of Exodus 34, 6, that he is gracious, that he's, sorry, compassionate and merciful, that he is he is slow to anger, that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We've seen it in Jesus. We need someone to wake us up from our sin, and that is exactly what Jesus has come to do. We are Jonah. And God's grace shown to us in Jesus is calling us to his kingdom. Stop fleeing. Stop the wake of destruction. Turn around. Give yourself to him. Because if we want to find peace, if we want to find peace, it's going to be in him. That's where we're going to find it. It's not going to be running towards Tarshish. That is not where we will find peace. It is in the counterintuitive, even doing that thing that we actually don't want to do. It's a place where we, where we find peace. As we submit to God, as we say, you know what? I trust you. You know better than I do. Like Jonah, God's grace may take you and I to places we don't want to go. I'm just gonna. I'm not gonna pretend that that's not true. There are gonna be times where God's grace calls us to go to places we just don't want to go, and we have that that point where we can say, "Okay, God, I trust you, and I'm gonna do it anyway," or we can go, "No thanks, I'm gonna go to Tarshish." But we can trust that in the end, we will see that this place that God took us is exactly where we need to be. So I finish with this. Maybe you say, I can't. I can't do that. Maybe you, maybe you think, I don't know how. Start by turning to Jesus. That's where this whole thing starts. And maybe you're like, well, I do follow Jesus. Okay, we'll turn again. All right, so did John of all God too. Right? <laughs> Up until this point. And so maybe we're at that point too where we go, you know what? I need to turn follow Jesus. Give yourself to him and let the Spirit lead you. Stop running and come home.